As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. the Total Soccer Show Weekend Review, where we look back on a weekend where Lukaku sent the Gunners to the shops. Inter Milan showed they still have their chops. RB Leipzig's performance deserved massive props, and Inter Miami showed their no longer massive flops. For now. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who is as energetic and he gets the job done so well. He's everything that Anthony Martial as a centre forward is not right now. Taylor Rockwell. That is well done, Ryan. My That introduction made me have the hops. There we go. I'll keep the rhyming tradition going. Yes, it's good to be here. It's nice to talk to you. And it's nice to not talk about Anthony Martial. So no more Man United talk for the rest of this hour. Is that what you're asking me, Taylor? I mean, I think that should be the legal requirement. Yes. Whenever they play as boring and poorly as they did, I think we can skip right past them. All right. Well, next week when they're good again, we'll pick that right back there we up, go. Taylor. There we go. Hey, week one champions, though. They're week one champions. Don't forget. Week one champs for life. Yeah. <laughs> also here is the personification of a Danny Ings volley. Very satisfying, clinical, and reassuringly expensive. It's Joe Lowry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like the price tag part the most. Um, and I also like how Taylor just threw in a random word that rhymed with the things you were saying that didn't relate at all. Um, I don't have one of those, but... Uh, just pretend like I did, and it ended with ops. Hey, it gave me hops. That worked. It was. Uh, he said I was energetic. Hopping are you, are energy. You, it all fits. Are you trying to tell me that you you jumped up and down in your little your little home recording podcast studio, Taylor? I don't think you've got enough ceiling for that, man. Joe, I'm not your pops. I can't tell you what to do. Another <laughs> one. I'll keep it going if that's what this requires. Hey, you guys should stop. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> that's enough. <laughs> 
Also <laughs> here. I'm back in. I'm back in. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Also here is the man who rips his shirt off just like Cristiano Ronaldo scoring a 94th minute offside header whenever he finishes a podcast. <laughs> it's Graham Rudman. <laughs> Yeah, and, and like Cristiano Ronaldo, I also look as foolish uh, after it gets disallowed uh, yeah. and match ends in a draw. And you've kind of made a bit a, of a fool of yourself. Indeed, quite, quite a game that was. Maybe we'll touch on that a little later on in the podcast, Graham. But just for now, those blue and yellow shirts, which I, I, I dissed yeah. on a previous podcast, I thought they looked slightly better in the flesh or thrown on the floor by Ronaldo at the end of a game. But... uh what were your thoughts on those? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think they looked better. It was actually a bit of a trend this weekend because I also thought the and this one divides opinion, but the Manchester United kit with the yellow shorts, I was a fan. A lot of people were not. I thought that looked better actually on them and, and the same with the Juventus kit. I, I, hmm. I like it, but it's so close. If it just wasn't a little bit so crazy, it could be an absolute classic. Like if it was, if it was just stripes across rather than zigzags. But yeah, I liked it. That Man United kit, by the way, was very reminiscent of uh, New York Red Bulls away kits. They've had a few in yeah. those exact shades, I'm quite sure. Um, uh, Joe and Taylor, I'm going to ask you to sit on the sidelines for a few minutes because I've got a few questions for Graham based on events that we learned <laughs> this weekend. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, no. Yes, please. Yes, please. <laughs> firstly, firstly, um, you sent us a picture, Graham, of one of your dinners. Uh, would you like to describe <laughs> what that dinner was? <laughs> oh, no. Um, so... <laughs> It was a deep fry, so it was a, a, a full pizza supper, as we would call it in Scotland, which is a deep fried pizza with uh, chips, which are slightly thicker fries. How do Americans have the reputation for being the fat ones? Like, how does that happen? It's so good. And also a thing that I learned is that I think I might have mentioned deep fried pizza during my Italy preview of the Euros. Apparently, that the roots of that are from Italy, from Naples. That's A deep fried pizza is a, a Naples thing. So, ha! We're not uh, <laughs> we're not destroying Italian cuisine. They're doing that oh. for themselves. <laughs> it was the presentation that got to be great. The the pizza, the deep fried pizza, was on top of the fries. It seemed like the wrong way around. And what kind of pizza was it? It looked like one of those very cheap microwave supermarket oh, yeah. ones. Oh yeah, that's part of the appeal. It has to be a cheap. I think that's maybe where we Scots have changed <laughs> the Italian recipe. I think they probably do it with a uh, quite high grade pizza. Whereas the whole deal in, in Scotland is you want to do it with the cheapest pizza possible, Ugh. and it's fantastic. This, Graham, is, is that why your least... country can't have nice things, Graham? This is this is just. <laughs> oh, could could you also, Graham, just describe the drink that you had? It was an iron brew. Would you like to tell the audience what that is as well? That's that's a very nobody knows what iron brew is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a sort of fruity. Back in the day, they used to say it was made out of girders, which was just marketing speak. But it's uh, like it's fruity. It doesn't really taste of anything in particular. But it, I, I'm led to believe that Scotland is the only country in Europe where Coca Cola isn't the best-selling fizzy drink uh, soda and in fact it's iron brew. So it's hugely popular here, and you can't have anything from the chip shop without having iron brew wow speechless um that, that well that was wonderful i, I wrote, uh, if you didn't put it on your twitter already graham please do uh and also we learned of your game watching habit we're the total soccer show we watch a lot of soccer games it's our job and we enjoy doing it very much but we learned that you watch quite a lot of games per weekend how many games have you watched this weekend graham <laughs> So I counted it up and it was, uh, I mean, I did watch three this morning before we, we did this podcast, but for including those, it's, it's, uh, it was 16 or 17, I think maybe for the weekend, which is, yeah, I guess rather a lot, <laughs> but, uh, 
Not in, in the UK, we can't have 3pm games on, so I actually have a period where I don't watch games, but I'll double up with two or three at the same time for most of the weekend. Yeah. So you're dual screening these. You're not. These aren't like back to back. Oh, they are back to back, just normally with two or three all at the one time. <laughs> so wow. I just picture, I just picture when there is that 3pm break that Graham just sits there in the exact same position and stares at a vacant television until soccer resumes and then he powers back on. That's how I picture this working out. <laughs> I mean, that is pretty much true because I put on Soccer Saturday, which in the UK is is um, the compromise where the, a lot of men sit around and watch the games and tell you what's happening. So, yeah, that pretty much is a, a blank screen. And, yeah. So. <laughs> so, to be clear, Soccer Saturday is uh, retired professionals watching a screen and telling you what they're watching on the screen. That's how they get around 3pm blackouts in the UK. It's as fun as it sounds. Um Graham, also you told us that you, you oh, such God. is your dedication to, to soccer and covering it, that you spent part of your wedding day covering a game. Yeah, that's 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 100% correct. <laughs> 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 I, I remember the, the game as well. Was it? So I, I think the ceremony, my wedding ceremony was uh, maybe three o'clock, I think. During the blackout, so, yeah. So you, yeah. So your your sport, um, who is who I work for at the weekends, they they asked if I if I, they didn't know I was getting married that day, and they said, you know, are you free to do a shift that day? I said, yeah, if it's an early shift, like so, I finished at about two o'clock, I think, and uh, it was fine. It helped with the nerves. It was good. I actually remember the game that was on. It was West Ham versus Manchester United, and West Ham won. Taylor, if you remember that game at the London Stadium, that was the day. I remember so, nothing. <laughs> Graham, Graham, you weren't free that day. You weren't free that day. That was the answer. I, I was. I was. I wasn't doing anything up until the ceremony. <laughs> Graham Rutherford, everybody. Uh, part of the Total Soccer Show. Uh, his adventures continue. Stay tuned. Gents, we, um, why don't we turn our attention? We're going to be t- talking about a lot of soccer uh, from the weekend. We've got some Bundesliga coming up, some Serie A. We're going to go to MLS as well, uh, amongst other things. We'll start off, why don't we, in the Premier League. Uh, Manchester City smashed Norwich 5-0. Lots of work to do for Daniel Farkas' side there. Jack Grealish got his first goal in that game, by the way. Uh, delicately smashed in off his knee. He totally meant to do it. Um, Spurs won the Nuno Derby with a 1-0 win at Wolves in which Harry Kane did some soccer. Very exciting stuff. And Taylor, I'm going to go back on your vow not to talk about Man United. They kept up their tradition of not beating sides who hunker down and defend. A 1-1 draw at Southampton was the best they could manage. Uh, How did you feel about that one, Taylor? A a tight two hours on that, please. Yeah, I think we should go back to the conversation about dressage we were having before the show started. And I've got some some hard and firm opinions about a sport that I literally know nothing about. Uh, I would rather talk about that instead of Man United. No, I feel I feel like this was kind of the result that was expected when they played a more defensive team. I think leads were more open and sort of then once they went 1-0 down, had to chase the game a bit more in this one. Man United going a goal down. I guess you could argue fighting back to get the the draw against a team that had caused them problems in the first half. But I think some of the concerns that we had talked about, largely a lack of depth at central midfield or a lack of reinforcement there, maybe rearing its ugly head if you're a Manchester United fan. And if you're not, rearing its wonderful head in this game. Indeed. Well, that was uh, the earlier game on Sunday. Let's focus our attention, though, gents, on the slightly later game on Super Sunday. Arsenal against Chelsea, this one finishing 2-0 to Chelsea. Uh, Perhaps the golfing class between these sides, Joe, was bigger than the scoreline suggests. There was booing at full time from the Arsenal fans. Arsenal fans, in fact, surrounding Mikel Arteta's car as he tried to leave the stadium. They were asking him to leave the club in no uncertain terms, although there were fans of the other 19 Premier League clubs also there asking him to stay (laughs) in the club. 
in no uncertain <laughs> terms. Uh, Joe, I think before we came on uh, air, you, you were praising Chelsea for how good they were in this game. Was it that they were incredibly awesome, which they were, or that they faced a side who lacked in most departments? Yes. The answer to that question is yes, Ryan. <laughs> Chelsea, Chelsea were really, really, really good. They were playing Tuchel ball again this week. I think they were they were even better this week than they were last week against Crystal Palace. They were in that 3-4-3 shape. We saw Romelu Lukaku for the first time again with Chelsea, and, and he was good. The whole team was good. I was trying to think of some standout performers, and, and I know we'll talk more about Lukaku later because that is the big story from this game, but everyone. From, the, from this Chelsea team was a standout performer, including their manager, Thomas Tuchel. He set them up in a way that, that just made them pass the ball so effortlessly, and the players were excellent moving the ball and actually executing their own tactical instructions. Arsenal, for their sake, I don't, I don't know what they were doing. I, I am confused. I know they're missing players, right? I know this isn't their first choice starting 11, and that will come ideally later on in the season for them. But even with that excuse noted and acknowledged, it was, a, it was a poor showing from Arsenal uh, in, on an individual player-by-player player basis. Not that there weren't some, some standouts, but also from Mikel Arteta. I mean, the way that he, he set this team up, they had a numerical disadvantage in midfield for the, almost the entire game. And they tried to do different things to change it, but they, by the time they changed it, they were already a goal down. It, it just it didn't make sense to me the way that they approached this game. Emil Smith-Rowe had way too much defensive responsibility. He couldn't track Jorginho and Kovacic at the same time, and that's exactly what led to, or, or part of what led to Chelsea's first goal. It, 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 did, it made no sense to me what they were trying to do, and, and it made Chelsea look a lot better. Is it just, Joe, they just had very little positional discipline it seemed like a lot of players were all over the place and in positions where you wouldn't necessarily expect them to be from what I could see positional indiscipline for sure uh, and another part is just I think their original tactical instructions didn't set them up to succeed. So they're in that four-two-three-one shape arsenal, and they've got the two wingers. They've got Pepe on the right and Saka on the left, and they, then they've got Martinelli up top, and then Emil Smith-Rowe underneath, and the, the double pivot underneath those players. And the front three of sorts, we don't usually call it a front three in a four-two-three-one, but the two wingers and then the striker were kind of standing directly in the passing lanes in front of Chelsea's three center backs. And, and that's that's fine. Block up those passing angles, step and pressure the center backs, and try try to disrupt play from the front, but they didn't actually step in pressure a whole lot, number one. So they were just kind of standing in no man's land doing nothing. And then you had Emil Smith-Rowe trying to do two people's jobs, and he's just one man, and Chelsea continued to play through that. Then they, then Arsenal tried to switch and, and have Lukonga step forward a little bit, and then Kai Havertz opened up, and in the second half they had Martinelli drop back, and that just created a numerical disadvantage in another place, and they were always chasing, and that led to what looked like a really weird-looking defensive shape and, and just a really structured and undisciplined performance from from Arsenal. Taylor, it, it baffles me how we've got to this place with Arsenal, with Mikel Arteta yeah. in charge. How do, how do we get to this specific place where they are a pretty average team who seem to be quite indisciplined, who seem to maybe not be getting the best instruction, don't play particularly attractive soccer? What's going on here? I mean, is this going to be a seven-hour podcast? Is that what we're going for? <laughs> um, I'll, I'll give you, like, like from this game, the things that stood out to me. Uh, I want to, like, go go back and echo some of the things that Joe said there. I think they were trying to sort of have their front three, occasionally a flat front four, like, like block off the options through the middle, make it difficult for Chelsea to find any sort of balls into the feet of Lukaku. And I think Shaka and uh, Lokonga were key to that and sitting in front of him. But then as Chelsea start to move and, and try to pull Arsenal apart, they don't really have to try that hard. They do it pretty easily. And Shaka starts trying to track 
I think it was usually Mason Mount that Chaka was on. Uh, Lokonga was responsible for a couple different people, but what would end up happening is one would drop deeper, one would step higher, and suddenly there are these huge gaps. And I equate it almost, this is a very topical reference, I apologize in advance, it's the quickest one I could think of, but it reminds me of like, do you remember the video game Frogger, the old, old, old video yeah. game where you have to like hop the frog across the street and not get hit by trucks? And you have to like wait for the gaps to open up, and it felt like Arsenal sort of were playing a game of Frogger in which all of the trucks were just stopped, and it was like, ha-ha, can you get through? Oh, you can. You can get through really easily without us moving? Oh, well, that's sort of our fault. And I think a lot of that goes to Arteta and some of the instructions he gave them. Saka clearly being told, don't worry about tracking back. Like, that makes sense if you if you think you're going to be able to ping the wingbacks back because, oh, they've committed numbers forward, they're not sending them back, so we're vulnerable on the counter. But Saka didn't even really do that, and that let Reese James have acres, almost literally acres of space out wide. And then Kieran Tierney, uh, I think for for his part, was so oftentimes double teamed as a result and had to kind of try to figure out when to leave one open player to get to another open player. And the commentator uh, for the opening goal at least blamed it pretty squarely on him and not closing down fast enough. But when you're tracking one player and then you have to go try to close down another wide open player, I don't really know if that's on you as much as it is the system. And so to bring it back to your question, Ryan, I think the thing that really... I'm sure Arsenal fans are already way ahead of me on this, but like it was really strange to look at the touchline. And another thing the commentators pointed out, on the American feed at least, was that you had Mikel Arteta essentially micromanaging is what it looks like. He's just standing there. He's coaching every single player. He's giving tons of instructions, and it's constant feedback, and it's very Pep Guardiola. We know he's, he's sort of – that's his mentor. That's who he learned under, and so it is that style. But when it's Pep and it's Man City and they're winning – it seems much more like, oh, he's on top of everything. He never relaxes. And like we see him having those animated conversations with his assistants on the touchlines, and it gives you this idea that everything is very serious and everything is very analyzed. And if there is a mistake one minute, that mistake will not happen the next minute. But when you're Arsenal and you're not winning and you do look sort of basically outcoached and outplayed, and then you see that coach on the sideline frantically coaching and trying to... It doesn't look like this sort of involved, in-depth coach. It looks more like panic to me. It looks more like a coach trying to get people to... Like, no, you've got... Remember, you've got to be two yards over. No, remember, you've got to be deep. No, you've got to step forward. Like, it's giving tons of instruction, and, and it has the opposite effect to me. It ends up looking like he is trying to figure it out and get the team to play, and it looks like a manager who kind of just took over a club, and I find... That very, very strange, and I'm going to assume for Arsenal fans, very not reassuring. Very not reassuring. And on that note, Graham, I, I want to know how Arteta survives this and how he gets out of this. If this, if this was Chelsea, and the first week they lost to a promoted side, and then they get completely outplayed by a fellow London team the second week, I think Mr. Abramovich would make the call and it would be Alfie de Saint-Tommy. So how, how does, how, how, is, there a, is there a different standard for Arteta and how does he survive this? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite difficult for me to speak about Arteta without verging into blistering hot takes, which I'm, I'm, I'm quite, um, do keen it, to do avoid. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I don't get Arteta, to be perfectly honest, as, as a manager. It's, it's coming up for two years now that he's in, he's been in the job. Now, we, we, we referenced for this specific match. Yes, they were without a, a number of key players. Thomas Partey, Ben White was ill. Abamyang's on the bench. Lacazette, Tierney goes off injured which by the way is absolutely great Scotland have got internationals coming up and both of our brilliant left backs have are injured at the moment that's fantastic Martin Odegaard not involved yet but but how many of those players really would have made a difference I would say maybe Thomas Partey is maybe the the, the only only one 
And I speak off, I've spoken a number of times about the sign, in my opinion, the sign of a good, a well coached team is when players come out of a team and the bones and the approach, approach of a side and the style of play remains the same. There may be a drop off in the, the standard of performance, but you're getting the same kind of performance. I don't get that at all with Arsenal. So in this particular match, yes, they're missing a lot of key players, but I don't get the sense that it would have been much different if those players had been there because what is Arsenal's identity as a team? Arsenal traditionally under Wenger were a side, even when things were going poorly for them, you knew what they were, you, you were going to get from them. They had a distinctive style of play. What is, what is Arteta's vision for this team? I, I don't, I don't see what his vision is. I don't see what this, people have spoken about trust the process with Arteta. What is that, what is that process and what is it leading to? And, and, um, I just don't see what he has done to justify the patience. At, the, at this moment, I I personally would have made a change probably at the end of last season and given a new manager the chance over the summer. Now Arsenal have committed to another season with Arteta. They've signed presumably players that he's wanted at the club, so they've committed to him again in that sense. And it's, it, Arsenal are a real mess. Like I, I think that's that's part just, of the problem that Graham just spelled out there. Sorry, Graham, am I interrupting you? No, no, no. I was I was I was trailing off at the end. On you go. Um, basically that like I think like I saw a bunch of Arsenal fans talking about how they they just just sack him and get in Antonio Conte and first of all like easier said than done but even if that were to happen Conte has a style and a system and he wants a back three and he wants certain players to do certain things and that requires a lot more investment and Arsenal don't seem like they want to do that so I think there is that element of we can stick with Arteta he's going to focus on bringing through young players and we'll get there eventually and I think it's it's similar to the Man United model of if we stick with a person long enough, eventually they figure it out and there's stability. And I think with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Man United, that it's still a question as to whether or not that will work out. And I think that's very much the case with Arsenal. The thing that would have me more concerned if I were an Arsenal decision maker, which I am not yet. We'll see how things play out. Uh, but after that first goal, after Chelsea's opener, uh, there's another sequence Arsenal. I think it's maybe straight from the restart that they're possessing. Ball goes to Saka, and I think he spots an opportunity. I think it's Chelsea pretty aggressively pressing at that point. Saka thinks he has Pepe uh, wide on the opposite side and goes for a long ball that is overhit and overhit and underhit at the same time, basically. And the entire crowd just starts booing. And in that moment, like that is a young player who is trying to make something happen. And it's not a well-hit pass, but that's where I would be concerned, is that if the idea is we're bringing through these young players and we're going to get this core squad that will succeed— if you're let, letting frustration build such that when one of those players mishits a pass, they get booed and attacked, you're not building confidence. You're not building a team unit. You're building basically a bunch of people who don't want to make mistakes for fear of getting yelled at and booed. And that's not going to help build squad harmony either. Indeed. Well, we spent a lot of time speaking about a mid-table team here. Let's talk about Chelsea for a little yeah. bit as well. Um, Christian Pulisic not available. He's got he had to, he's got COVID despite being Ooh. fully vaccinated. We understand. This was. Uh, Joe, a really well-organized Chelsea team, as you said. You know, everyone seemed to know their jobs. Everyone seemed to know how to create space, although they were given it on, on quite a few occasions. And they just they just had so much control. When they took the lead, they seemed to very much control the pace. They they took the ball as often as they wanted. Uh, Jorginho seemed to be really special in the middle. And and Joe Lukaku, pretty good, isn't he? Very, very pretty good. I, uh, Ryan, I agree with your analysis completely. Uh, Jorginho's hair kind of throws me off, but it does make it easy to see him on the field. So I, I guess I appreciate that about his game. It makes him stand out. But with Lukaku, yeah, I mean, you're spot on. He is unreal. And we knew he was going to be unreal, right? Graham, I, I read your piece about 
Lukaku. I think I think you were the one who wrote this. Shoot, now I can't remember about Lukaku making Chelsea just a give really me credit team. Credit. Okay, all right, Graham wrote Karen it. We're just gonna say Graham wrote it. It didn't. So it did. didn't. So it couldn't have been Graham. That's a good point. Lukaku <laughs> makes Chelsea a more complete team, and it, it doesn't take a genius to be able to see that. But we really saw it play out in this game on Sunday. He has this. He has this gravitational pull, right? And every soccer player has a gravitational pull in that when they receive the ball, you're going to step to them to an extent, right? With Lukaku, you're really going to step to him because if you don't, he can turn and he can drive at you. And Graham, I know you say this, Lukaku's extremely dangerous when he's running towards a backline or running yeah. towards, you know, open space in transition. We see that with Belgium and we're going to see that with Chelsea. He's also dangerous in possession and he just makes it so that defenses have a lose-lose situation. Do we step to him and open up space? Other places will allow him to receive the ball and then pin us and spin us? Or do we leave him open, let him receive the ball between the lines, and then turn and drive forward and play point guard? It, it is a lose-lose situation. Lukaku gets a goal here by receiving the ball, and, and he, he does good work in the box. He was impactful deeper down the field in the attacking half, still getting on the ball. I mean, he has that dummy that uh, is a part of the second goal. He is he's phenomenal. He is already easily one of the best strikers in this league, and he was always going to be. Chelsea are scary, folks. I think I think with we all know how good Lukaku is, but there's there's just something about coaches and managers. There's something about them that sometimes scrambles their minds, the, the managers, and and how they use them. And so that was the interesting part of this game for me was does Tuchel? I anticipated he would know how to use them, but just for for to be certain, does Tuchel know how to use Lukaku? And I think we got a, an emphatic yes. He knows yes. how to use Lukaku. There was a point in the the second half. I tweeted this out, and it, it might have been in that article as well that I wrote, Joe. There was a point in the second half when Tuchel had Lukaku out on the right wing with Havertz playing through the middle and that was an uh-oh moment for me where that was confirmation. Tuchel knows how to use Lukaku. He knows <laughs> that he is more than just the Joseph, the, the player that Jose Mourinho saw him as, which was this kind of front man to hit with long balls and, and crosses. And, and Lukaku actually has improved his hold-up game a lot. He can actually play that way. But Tuchel knows you want to get Lukaku running at, at opposition defences. And that's scary. That's scary for the rest of the Premier League. It makes, for me, Chelsea the, the title favourites. Not just the fact they've made that signing, but that Tuchel knows how to use him. And they've just they've just got so many different options, Chelsea. Now, you know, they, they can play in the rapid counter-attack or they can control the ball through Jorginho and Mount. They can play a tight, compact front three of Havertz, Mount, Lukaku... Or they can stretch their front three across the pitch with wingers. They can go physical or they can go technical. They can speed things up or they can slow things down. And the, the most impressive aspect of their performance against Arsenal was that Chelsea toggled between all those different approaches in, that, in the same match. And that control of being able to do different things, not just over the course of a season, but within the one match is hugely impressive and is the biggest contrast. I mean, I know you can look at the quality of the players between Chelsea and Arsenal, but that, for me, is the biggest contrast between those two teams. It's just the level of coaching and that control that Chelsea have in all those different styles and methods. And another facet, Graham, their depth as well. They well, uh, Mount, Habits and Kovacic coming off for Kante, Ziyech and Werner. That's quite good, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not bad. And 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 again, that just that those those changes that just give them a different way to play. I mean, Werner can play in the Lataro Martinez role alongside Lukaku. You know, Ziyech is more of a creator who'll cut inside. Hudson Adoy, who I know didn't come on here, he's more of a winger. He's got good deliveries as well. They've just got so many different options. And that's why I say Chelsea might not win the title because City are an excellent team and Liverpool are an excellent team and Man United are potentially an excellent team. But 
they Chelsea are the the most complete team. I don't really see a weakness. I, I can point at where weaknesses are in City's team and in Liverpool's team. I, I can't really do that with Chelsea. And there's talk they're going to add Jules Koundé as well to their back line. <laughs> so yeah, a scary, scary team at the moment. Not Tyler, can you like argue that? Uh, not since like that second season of Jose Mourinho have I been this scared of a Chelsea team. Like genuinely, I don't know how you beat them. And I and Lukaku coming in, Graham, to, to your point, like did you see the photo of him when he was at Man United and clearly what Jose Mourinho wanted him to be versus what he is now? Um, I didn't. No, he, please. He is it, probably like thirty pounds of muscle uh, more for Manchester United, but that does a certain thing if you want them to be a target striker. But if you want them to be mobile and agile at the same time as being like physically imposing that's not going to do it and he is just such a more complete striker now and a lot of that goes to Antonio Conte but I I just picture Thomas Tuchel saying to him like okay sometimes I need you to hold it up yeah that's fine sometimes I need you to get on the end of a cross also fine sometimes I need you to run in behind totally fine like it's just every single thing he needs his forward to do Lukaku can do and I don't really know how you can game plan for that I think he is going to be so incredible, and I think the other key part of this for me was his relationship with Mateo Kovacic is already really strong, that Kovacic, you could see, is turning as quickly as he can and immediately looking to the feet of Lukaku because he can fire that ball in 30, 40, 50 yards, and Lukaku brings it down immediately or settles it with one touch. And if you can just have that relationship and bypass everything your opponent is doing by playing it into a forward who can hold the ball up but can run in behind but can lay it off but can get a shot like I don't know how you handle that and I think Chelsea just look so comprehensively good I had concerns about will Tuchel burn them out and maybe that's still a concern but certainly not right now certainly not right now Chelsea looking pretty good and they are top of the league as it stands after two games that all important two game table that we're looking at right now Uh, we'll be back very shortly after these messages with some Bundesliga This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, we are back. We are talking Bundesliga. Bayern Munich got their first win of the season, a 3-2 win over Cologne. Serge Gnabry bagging the winner in that one. Borussia Dortmund, meanwhile, lost 2-1 to Freiburg. They kept Haaland and Daniel Marlen under wraps very nicely. Bayer Leverkusen, was, uh, they steamrolled uh, Gladbach 4-0 to get a win on the board for the first time this season. Wolfsburg, they top the league. They are uh, the Bundesliga's Chelsea right now after after all so many games being played in this league. A 2-1 win at Hertha and a 1-0 win over Bochum last week puts them top of the league. But the team we are going to focus on for now, Mr. Taylor Rockwell, or the two teams, I should say, Erbi Leipzig and Stuttgart. Uh, Leipzig getting a 4-0 win uh, over Stuttgart in this one. 
two American coaches here, Marsh and Matarazzo, going at it. Apparently, um, Tyler, uh, Tyler Adams and uh, Pellegrino Matarazzo were born only 50 miles apart in Wappinger, New York, and Wayne, New Jersey, respectively. And the only thing I know, the other thing I know about Wayne, New Jersey, is it's where the band Fountains of Wayne are from, and it was a store <laughs> in Wayne, New Jersey. Fact. Was it a fountain store? Could you buy various fountains there? I believe that was the nature of the store. It'd be very misleading if it wasn't. I I was joking. There are fountain stores. <laughs> All right, I've learned new things. Yes, this was a very exciting game. I was I was showing it to my wife and saying like, yeah, they're coached by an American. Oh, they're also coached by an American, and there's an American playing. It was a very very exciting thing, which I'm sure is, you know, a normal thing for for people who are. English or Spanish or Italian or German, but for an American, it was cool to see two American coaches coaching in the Bundesliga. Uh, less cool to see one of them getting destroyed by the other one, but also <laughs> given the way Leipzig started their opener, it was good to see them uh, playing well, getting some fortunate goals, but also some really good uh, like kind of team build-up goals, and it made me happy and sad at the same time. Uh, well, I'll tell you who was happy here. Mr. Zlobberslai. 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 <laughs> Got there in the end, so kind good. of. Didn't he have a good one, Graham? Ah. Uh. I am such a, I mean, I know I, I'm not the only one, but I'm such a fan of Dominic Sobosai. It feels like he really could be the face of, of Jesse Marsh's RB Leipzig team. Um, it feels like, to me anyway, he's the player in that squad with, with the highest ceiling. It wouldn't surprise me. Not that RB Leipzig are a, are a small club or playing at a, lower le- a low level or anything like that, you know, Champions League club, but it really wouldn't surprise me to see him at one of the the biggest clubs in, in Europe pretty soon. Uh, his first start for, for Leipzig, I believe, in, in this match. And two goals, his second one slightly fortunate, although I, I did love the way he kind of, it was kind of like a golf shot. Did he mean um, it, Graham? Did he mean it? No, he didn't mean it. That, that's a that's a cross into the box, but it, it, it it's, it's a good cross and it obviously finds its way into the back post. But his first goal is magnificent, the way he kind of bends it, guides it into the far corner from just inside the box. And you just get a sense this guy is going to be special. He he's all, he seems to have been integrated really quickly into this Leipzig team. The way that Marsh has got his his front four, I guess if you want to call it, an attack all interchangeable. Andre Silva is kind of the the apex of the attack in the way that that Leipzig maybe haven't had in recent seasons. He's he's more of a kind of orthodox striker, but they've got Forsberg and Sobosly and Nkuku behind him, all interchangeable, all switch positions. Just a nightmare for opponents to keep track of, and and we saw that. Uh, I think in particular was it the second goal where there was all the kind of flicks and tricks and yeah. they kind of danced through the Stuttgart defence and uh, Forsberg kind of burst through and, and, and toe pokes it into the back of the net. The fact, the fact I'm calling it a toe poke kind of does a disservice to the quality of the goal because it was a, a magnificent goal and just summed up what I think Marsh wants this Leipzig team to be. Yeah, definitely. That front four is looking very, very impressive. Uh, Joe, what about Tyler Adams? He seemed to have a, I seem to remember he had a pretty decent chance early on and, and, and a good performance from him as well. Absolutely. I tweeted out something because I watched this game after it had happened. It happened on Friday and I watched it on Saturday morning and I hadn't seen much about the performance. I knew the scoreline and all that good stuff, but I, w- I was paying special attention to Tyler Adams as I as I often do. And I tweeted out something to the effect of, man, I've never seen Tyler Adams. I've never noticed Tyler Adams look this confident and be this effective on the ball with his passing. Because Taylor, you and I kind of talked about this last week on our American Weekend Review and, and how I wanted to pay more attention to what he's doing on the ball to see if maybe maybe he's improving in that area. Because I'd almost, and this is wrong, but I'd, I'd almost in the back of my mind written Tyler Adams off as a, a plus, plus, plus passer. And he's not that right now, but it really does Joe, seem to me like plus, he's plus getting plus better. Passer? 
real good. Just like really you – know, I mean imagine you're taking notes like scouting somebody. If somebody's okay. bad, you probably put a minus next to them. If, if they're good, you put a plus next to them. So I he's genuinely not, thought that was like an XG thing. No, <laughs> like, no, Is that no, a new stat? No. I don't know. Yes, it is. Just kidding. I just made it up and it's really cool. Nice. And I you like have to pay like to hear it. more about it. Um, it. So with Tyler Adams, he was pulling out passes that I, I just haven't seen him do a whole lot before. I, I don't have the specific minute, but I, I remember this moment where he's receiving the ball and he, he looks off a defender. He looks one way and he turns his hips one way and then he passes another way. And that's like a that's like a Busquets type of, of play. And I'm not saying Tyler Adams is Busquets. Michael Bradley and Will Trapp do those things too. And we know those players aren't Sergio Busquets either. But it is the trait of a player who is growing more comfortable on the ball and is starting to be able to manipulate defenders with his eyes and with his hips to create more space. And that's something you love to see from a number six. It's something that Jesse Marsh is going to love to see. It's something that Greg Berhalter is going to love to see. I've just been really encouraged by the start of this 2021 campaign. Uh, I've been encouraged by what I've seen from Tyler Adams so far this season. That was um, some plus, plus, plus analysis there, Joe. Thank you very much. Um, Taylor, what do you make of this team in terms of their their potential challenge on on Munich? Then, based on based on what we've seen in this game, I don't know if they will have enough uh, like overall talent, overall depth to challenge for Bayern Munich and whoever else. Wolfsburg obviously are, are the main uh, title That's contenders right. right now. But like th- this, it's a team that probably is going to sneak up on you for all the reasons that Joe and Graham have already expressed. That they don't have that sort of like marquee name that you have to be really terrified of and pay attention to like maybe that's Silva but I I don't even think of him as this like you're you're definitely putting him on the advertisement when you want to sell the game I think it's it's mostly the team playing as a unit but I think that is to Graham's earlier point about Mikel Arteta I think you could swap some of these guys out and some of these new players who are coming in they seem like they kind of have an idea of what's being asked of them based on the position or where they are on the field and I think that that's what young players need and that's what a young team needs and I think they will be very good because they're going to be so difficult and then he does seem to be getting good performances out of players like Sobosly who he has experience with out of Tyler Adams who seems to have taken on much more of a vocal role in this team there were moments when players weren't stepping and weren't pressing weren't making runs they were supposed to and it seemed like Tyler Adams was the one who was responsible for for kind of picking them up and getting them on board and I like that level of leadership from him and then the player who I think like, prior to the Euros, I always thought of as like, yeah, he's good, he's been with Leipzig for forever, but he's not that next level, is Emil Forsberg. And what he did for Sweden in the Euros was really impressive. And then just continuing it in this game, and he looks at times like he is the most unplayable player on the pitch, and that is not a thing I really would have said about him in years past. And I, I don't want to give that all to Jesse Marsh, I'm not even sure he deserves much of the credit for that one but I just think the way he some of these players are combining and how sharp they do look we'll see if that continues to be the case because again early doors very young team but I I do think that they're not there's not a massive drop-off we're not seeing that sort of like oh it's a new manager they're changing their style we got to give them some time I think the reason you bring in somebody like Jesse Marsh who has experience in the Leipzig system down or the RB system down the line is that he can kind of come in make a few tweaks to fit his style or his approach, but for the most part, it's going to be similar. And so you can kind of keep performing and then adapt and then adjust and then evolve. And I think that they've put themselves in solid position to do just that. And 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 another thing that was so impressive, obviously with Leipzig scoring four goals in this game, your, your, your eye is drawing drawn to the attack. But the big question yeah. ahead of this season for Leipzig was it was at the back. Obviously, they, they lost yeah. their two, um, you would say, first choice central defenders. I know Kanate had injury problems, but he was still probably there 
along with Upamecano, their, their best central defender, both left over the summer. Willie Orban has been at the club for, for you know quite a while. He's a dependable performer, so that's one position nailed down. He had a decent game. But then Simakan, who had had an excellent game alongside Orban, and, and you, you just think... My goodness, Leipzig have done it again. <laughs> they found, you know, he, a 21-year-old French central defender comes in from Strasbourg and, and uh, you know, Ligon and looks the business. And it, you just question how Leipzig managed to keep doing this and other clubs are not beating them to the punch on these players. I thought he looked great and, and obviously it's still early days for him at the club, but he could develop into an Upamecano slash Kanate style central defender for them. And even Zoyal, so so- who who started for Croatia at the yeah. Euros at left back and looked a liability at times. And he is a natural center back. And I think even in those games, I was saying like, yeah, but he's mostly a center back. He's playing out of position. Like, I don't know if he would really ever thrive there. Here he is starting at left back and looks much more like solid as a performer. And I think, again, you're seeing them bring in young players, but find a way to kind of integrate them into the squad and have them perform pretty well from the start. Simikon plays like a madman. Oh my word. I love me an aggressive center back, one little step forward and all that good stuff. He did that at like a scary level. And Graham, I agree. I think he's hugely talented and can be a really productive player for them this season. But it was to the point where I was concerned for what was going to happen <laughs> if he pushed forward one more time. That's just something to keep an eye but on for Leipzig fans as the season goes. <laughs> But don't you think that like that's what Leipzig's Leipzig need their central central defenders to be yeah, like? Like they're yeah. so high intensity, and so like the continuity from Nagelsmann to to Marsh is there in someone like Simakan. Yeah, and that that continuity. Sorry, one one more thing for me, Ryan, on this game. That continuity. Leipzig looked a lot more dangerous with the ball than I really expected them to. And we kind of talked about that with Adams, but that was a really a team-wide thing. And Graham, you mentioned those interchangeable attacking players in that that attacking midfield three behind Andre Silva. But just collectively, the center backs push forward, Orban and, and Simikan, the fullbacks would get wide. And, and we just saw this look from Leipzig that, that kind of convinced me, although to be fair, Stuttgart really open, but it kind of convinced me that this Leipzig team has the tools to actually cause teams some problems in possession. And for me, based off of how Marsh has coached in the past, where it is heavily about transitions, I wasn't sure how this team would shape up when they meet a more defensively inclined opponent. Not that they necessarily did in this game, but I think they have some of the building blocks to be an effective possession team, in addition to being a really, really good pressing and counter-pressing team. Yeah, exciting stuff from RB Leipzig in this one. Uh, their next two fixtures, however, uh, current uh, reigning champions Wolfsburg, after two games, uh, are up next. And then Bayern Munich, so a couple of tests coming up for them. Maybe bigger tests than Stuttgart um, uh, certainly presented in this game. So we shall see. Gents, why don't we move over to Italy, which got things started. Uh, Juventus, uh, Graham, with a pretty bonkers 2-2 draw at Udinese. Udinese were 2-0 down in this one. Ronaldo, as we mentioned at the top of the show, thought he had the winner. Rips off his shirt with a, a, he got a nice header from across in and uh, disallowed, embarrassingly, for offside. So it wasn't 3-2 to Juventus, that one. Uh, Roma against Fiorentina as well. Roma getting a 3-1 win on Sunday evening. Uh, my brother's former name of Tammy Abraham, two assists for his new <laughs> club there. Play, and, and we know he's going to be doing great there. Play, players who are very, uh, players are always very famously well-treated by Jose Mourinho. So I'm sure he's going to be just fine uh, with his time in the Eternal City. Uh, but why don't we focus, gents, for a little bit on Inter Milan against Genoa. Into another team who got a 4-0 win uh, this weekend. No Lukaku, no problem, it seems, uh, Graham. Uh, this this Simon Inzaghi Inter um, seems quite similar to other previous <laughs> Inters we've seen in many ways. Is that right? 
Yeah, absolutely. I thought there were there were many similarities between the, the way Conte set up this this inter team last season and how Simone Inzaghi did in in this match. You know, tactically, both managers like to play with a, a back three and 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 wing backs. Both managers give freedom to their midfielders to to break forward. See how in this game, Barella and Chelanoglu had had a, had such an influence on on this match, um, and I think that's one of the. One of the reasons that Inzaghi was was brought in is that he he the idea is he will build on what Conte did at the at, at the club. Inter don't really have the finances to rebuild, so that's that's probably a smart move. And yes, there are some 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 subtle differences. I mean, the main difference was that there was no Martinez to to partner Zeko in attack, and oh yeah, Zeko is now the Lukaku in the, in this team, and obviously they are not exactly the same players. Zeko is is is, is more of a, a orthodox front man than, than Lukaku ever was uh, used by, by, by Conte and obviously they, as I mentioned they didn't have a front two it was more of a of a, a midfield five and then a 1-1 so some some differences but yes it was a, a very inter-performance and I actually think that's a, a, a really encouraging thing for them obviously what, what Conte did worked and if they can eke a little bit more out of that then that's probably a good thing to do yeah, Taylor, do you buy into that, that it's quite a similar setup to what we saw last season? Bearing in mind a new manager and bearing in mind many new players here, as we mentioned, Dzeko there leading the line, gets a debut goal here. Chalanolu coming in, free transfer from not very far away uh, from Milan, debut goal here. Uh, Matteo Damian coming in, and he, he got a start. Denzel Dumfries got minutes in this one as well. It seemed like they were a very clinical team here, and they they were playing, as we have seen previously, but with a lot of new parts. Yeah, and I think that's really to Inzaghi's credit because we we were just praising Marsh for this and I think part of that is like him being in the system and being familiar with the way Red Bull franchises want to play here Inzaghi is coming into a situation that was not of his own and isn't really it's not like his mentor set the team up and now he's taking over and I think he's taking a very smart approach I think he's adjusting what he wants to do to better fit the team and I think he's playing in a way that allows the players that have been there sustain stay in positions that are comfortable essentially I feel like he's keeping the majority comfortable and then he himself has to adapt rather than making the entire team sort of change what they want to do to suit his style and I think that has put him in a much better position to allow players to come in and sort of know what their role is going to be and you look at Hakan Jalanolu coming in and getting a goal and Ed Dzeko coming in and getting a goal or at least facilitating goals and and just it stood out to me as as just exactly how you want to start your season and I kind of forgot when I did the preview with David Amoyao that Inzaghi at Lazio is successfully managing a club that don't have a ton of money that aren't going to be the big spenders and you look at some of the squads he had and how closely he ran the title how deep he would take them in certain competitions and they weren't there were a lot of castoffs there were a lot of players who didn't have success elsewhere came to Lazio got got backed got belief and found a way to win certainly having Sergei Milinkovic Savic and his 19 foot tall stature doesn't hurt but I think he has plenty of world-class players here at Inter and so in some ways this is probably the strongest team uh, Simone Inzaghi has ever managed, whereas for Antonio Conte, it felt like a team that was being ripped apart. And I think maybe my self-reports of Inter's demise were slightly exaggerated. Not saying that they're going to win the title, not saying that they're going to be even comfortably top four. I think they will be, but I wouldn't say that with ease after one game. But I'll say that it was a much stronger performance than I was expecting. 
Yeah, certainly, Joe, the Inter fans seem to be encouraged from the chatter I was monitoring online here. You know, they still believe they've got a strong squad here, still believe they've got quite a, quite a lot of depth here, which they indeed do on both counts. Uh, how, how do you feel about this Inter team, Joe? They were They were really, really good in this game. I was pleasantly surprised at how... They approach pretty much every phase of play. I don't think this iteration of Inter Milan will be as focused on counterattacking and breaking into space, although I'm sure we'll see that some. This team looked really focused on controlling the ball, and, and part of that's based on the opponent here in, in Genoa, but they looked really focused on controlling the ball and, and moving off the ball and rotating into space, and then when they lost the ball, they would counterpress. I mean, it looked like a really modern attacking team that didn't have a ton of clear, obvious weaknesses. I mean, some of the goals they've scored were lovely. First of all, the Chalanolu goal in the 14th minute was a phenomenal strike from outside the box. The Vidal goal in the 74th minute comes off of Inter high pressing, then they win the ball, then they combine in midfield, and then Barella gets this touch in the box after uh, Edinjeko shoots, and, and Barella plays this little step over one touch pass to, to Vidal, who scores, and then Zeko gets his goal a little bit later on in this game. I mean, this was a phenomenal performance from them, and it, it made me excited to watch more of Inter as the season goes on. One thing I wasn't excited about, Graham, uh, to be serious for a moment, two really bad kits on display here. Um, oh, no. Not really, like that Inter kit I'm not a fan of, but the one that really got me was Genoa here, whose kits were grey, completely grey, yeah. no sponsor on them. They looked like the, they were from the future Armour Neutral Planet here. Uh, I, I wasn't impressed at all with what either team was wearing. And with Man United playing at Southampton on on this uh, on this very weekend, it reminded me of the grey kits they wore, which they famously took off at halftime because they couldn't see one another. I wonder if Genoa <laughs> had similar problems here. The, the Genoa kit was a shocker. I will, I'll, I'll accept that one. I like the Inter one. I think the sponsor it has spoiled it a bit, but they actually released it without the sponsor. And uh, I uh, may or may not have bought that Inter kit. Ooh, did you <laughs> so, use Bitcoin? <laughs> no, I, I used uh, digital bits. Uh, <laughs> That's my preferred method too, Graham. That's my yeah, preferred method. Um, I, I like it. It's not. It's not. As, last season's Inter kit was an all-time classic. It's not quite as good as that. But I quite like the snakeskin in our kit. And Graham, on the, on the subject of Genoa, I, I consider you our North Macedonia correspondent after the Euros. <laughs> and yeah, this is going to come up. Gor Pandev up top here doing his thing. What did you make of them? Uh, difficult for them. I think. I think it's fair to say. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not sure how much analysis I can provide of Genoa, just given how little we saw of them and how little we saw of, of Goran Pandev. I mean, the fact he he's starting this match, I'm not entirely sure what that says about Genoa. But um, yeah, they, they, they'll they'll have games where they they are allowed to impose themselves more than than this one. We didn't see much of them. I feel bad saying this, but like the grey kit, the lack of sponsor, but then they had like. Uh, Cambiasso playing at left wing back, but not spelled the way Esteban Cambiasso <laughs> is. And you had like Ernani in the middle, which like that felt like they didn't get the rights to Nani, so they had to create. <laughs> like it just it felt like a sort of knockoff team across the board. I feel oh, very man. bad saying that because Genoa are a club with a proud history and a proud tradition, and they've got lots of talented players in there. Just maybe not as talented when you're playing uh, this Inter team, who maybe had a point to prove. Well, there you go. Inter beating a team from Pro Evo Soccer there this weekend. There we go. We'll see what happens <laughs> next weekend. We're going to take a quick break. And when we're back, more soccer talk. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. 
Head over to MichelobeUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we have returned. A few more leagues to chat about, gents. I wanted to just mention what happened in France this weekend. PSG won at Brest. They won 4-2. They are top of league. Uh, no surprises there, but no Leo Messi in the squad yet there. It was Genie Wijnaldum playing behind a front two of Icardi and Mbappe in that one. Uh, not so pleasant scenes in Marseille versus Nice. That one turned ugly. Dimitri Payet was hit by a bottle. He threw it back, which is probably never a good idea. And that led to a pitch invasion and a very scuffles and uh, I believe the abandonment of the match as well so not uh, not pleasant scenes there in France for this weekend uh, but some more pleasantness in Spain perhaps Atleti atop with maximum points Barcelona drew one apiece with their bogey team Athletic Bilbao now I think about it um, Athletic Bilbao probably most La Liga teams bogey team but uh, that's probably a topic for another day uh, but Graham the big one probably of this weekend Levante against Real Madrid Gareth Bale starting getting the opener as well I believe he's wearing shirt number 18 and not 50 as he was not so long ago. So he's, uh, <laughs> he's upgraded his shirt number at the very least. Uh, but Vinicius getting the equaliser in the 85th minute from a pretty outrageous angle. Uh, this game was B-A-N-A-N-A-S, was it not? It absolutely was. This was, I mean, I know it's early days, but this was game of the season for me so far. It, it, it looked like Real Madrid were in complete control of the match at halftime with a 1-0 lead, as you mentioned, Gareth Bale, who apparently is still a thing, yeah. uh, scoring the, the first goal. He's actually looked, I mean, he's not he's not ripping up any trees or anything, but he's, he's looked pretty decent and Ancelotti is... Uh, Obviously, Bale played probably his best football for Real Madrid under Ancelotti, so he's he's had a second chance under him. It seems like Ancelotti has wanted to go with this Hazard Benzema Bale front line, which if he gets all of the all of them fit and firing, is the thing that could make Real Madrid title favourites. Uh, you know, those three are, are world class talents on the on their day. But yeah, Real Madrid looked to be in com- complete control, and then Levante scored an equaliser within thirty seconds of the restart and then another on 57 minutes which was an outrageous finish by Josie Campagna he meets it the ball's played to the back post Lucas Vasquez is nowhere to be seen which is a, a another sign that he's not really a right back shall we say uh, but Josie Campagna's got so much to do and he meets it you know that way where you you meet a, a, a ball on as it bounces as it's hitting the ground he hits it at that point and just unleashes it into the top corner of the net. It's the best the best finish I've seen so far this season. And then all of a sudden, Vinicius decides to become the best player in the world for 20 minutes. <laughs> he equalises for 2-2. Uh, and that was not something I was expecting. And then Robert Pierre makes it 3-2 after some terrible defending by Real Madrid. And then Vinicius scores another to make it 3-3 with this sort of incredible, I don't know how to describe it, like a flipped finish off the inside of the, the far post. And just when you think that maybe things might calm down, then Aitor Fernandez and I actually audibly laughed at this point because it was it was just it was getting too much. There was too much craziness going on. Aitor Fernandez rushes forty yards off his line to handle the ball to stop. I think it's Rodrigo. I think Venetius plays the ball through to Rodrigo, who has a whole half to run into. And Aitor can, has no choice but to rush off his line. He handles the ball, gets sent off. Levante have made their five changes. So Vezo, an outfield player, a defender, finishes the last. I mean, it was, it was about a solid 10 minutes of play. He plays in goal. 
and it finishes 3-3 and everyone <laughs> exhaled at the full-time whistle because this was crazy. Graham, this was Sunday night. This is probably the 13th game of the weekend you've watched. Was there any part of you that thought this might be a fever dream when this was happening? <laughs> yeah, especially because this happened after the Juventus-Udinese game as well. So, uh, yeah, I did wonder if I was hallucinating at a point. And can, I ask, can I ask Graham some questions on that front? Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually... Uh, Graham, for real though, like how do you... Because I will watch a game in depth, take notes, and then when I read those notes again, I have zero recollection of the game. Like I really have to take a moment to like read the note and try to remember the, the thing that happened. How are you able to keep everything in your head or do you not do you remember like general things from the game yeah i i obviously i can't remember all everything that happened in the there'll probably be some score lines there that would take me a little while to to recollect what they actually were over over the weekend but yeah ge- general things i think because the the spanish games i'm, I'm working them so i'm providing minute by minute updates mm-hmm. of of those and then a match report it's a little bit easier for me to re- to remember intricately what happened but yeah uh, ge- general things and like, is that also how you remembered your wedding on the day that you were doing the Eurosport <laughs> coverage? Was it like, like I just picture you having your phone like real quick, real quick, and Matic completes the pass. Okay, yeah, I do, I do for sure. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm in. And then yeah, the handshake, that, and then on you went. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, you know how I say my vows, I had strange vows, and they didn't mm-hmm. actually have any emotion. It could have been the case that they they did. It's just that I was providing updates on uh, Valencia's third goal away to. Uh, <laughs> Leganes. You had, you had, like, I like the idea of you having your phone on speaker, your editor's on the line, and you're having to do, like, the sitcom thing of say the vowels, but vowels, but also, like, do the update. And you're like, I love you the way Romelu Lukaku loves to score goals for Chelsea <laughs> in the 36th. But, like, like, just knowing exactly how you have to say it. I like it. Yeah, that's the way it was. Perfect. I don't even know how you fitted in a trip to the fishing tackle shop to get uh, spruced up for the for this big day as well on that day. There's so much you had to do that day, Graham. Goodness me. Yeah. If we if we mention OnlyFans, we've done the full Graham Rutherman gambit, by the way, of, of, uh, of Graham memes uh, for this episode. So we, wow. we're going very well with that. One more question on this, though, Graham, with Gareth Bale and, and reuniting with Ancelotti. Mm-hmm. At the Euros, Gareth Bale was telling us, you're, you're going to be super shocked at this crazy revelation <laughs> I've got coming out. And it turns out it was regular game time with his club yeah i mean maybe that was the crazy revelation <laughs> that it was going to be valuable to real madrid again uh, what a crazy world we live in all right gents why don't we turn our attention to major league soccer new england who'd have thunk it a storm in the eastern conference with a 4-1 win over cincinnati this weekend uh, orlando are chasing them they got a 1-0 win over chicago uh, we thought we might be covering the hudson derby this weekend but not much to report there apart from a big old rain delay of two and a half hours before a cancellation feels like they could have cancelled it a bit earlier than that but who am i to say uh in the west the sounders are still topping it with a two one win over Columbus but Joseph we're going to talk about the other Inter today Inter Miami got a 3-1 win over Toronto their fourth straight home win as one as David Beckham's children reminded us on social media uh, on Sunday (laughs) apparently they're now in the playoff hunt because sure Um, and and Lord Beckham himself was in attendance for this one Joe what did you make of this is this a flash in the pan they are uh, you know uh, things are looking up for Miami or they still got some systemic problems Oh, they still have some systemic problems. I feel bad <laughs> being uh, like a Miami buzzkill all the time, but it's hard to be anything else right now. The goals they scored in this game, a lot of them were just gifts from Toronto, right? Because Miami has their own set of problems. Toronto FC has their own 
real set of problems as well. They fired Chris Amras midseason, their their new manager, their new interim manager. He's got the rest of the season. Javier Perez has actually really done a worse job than Chris Armas in a lot of ways, and I sympathize with being thrown into that spot. But Toronto's not a good team, and they have a lot of problems too. The goals that Inter-Miami score in this game, the first one is from Pizarro in the 15th minute. It comes after Marquis Delgado's pass to Richie Larez, intercepted, and then Pizarro gets the ball and cuts across Singh, the left center back for Toronto FC. So there's there's errors there. The second goal is Robbie Robinson in the first half too, and he just kind of skates past Omar Gonzalez and scores, and Omar Gonzalez at this point in his MLS career is a defensive liability. And then in the second half, it's Pizarro again, 48th minute. And it's a long ball from Leandro Gonzalez-Pirez over the top to Pizarro. And and Singh can't control the ball, and he certainly doesn't clear the ball. He just ends up doing not a whole lot of anything. Pizarro gets the ball and scores. I mean, they were given gifts in this game, and they did some things well. They always do some things well, but every soccer team does something right in a game. I am not at all convinced by Miami at this point, even though I think they've won four of their last six games. They haven't played—they haven't beaten— a lot of good teams this season throughout the entire season. And that certainly hasn't changed over the last five, six games. Uh, Taylor, Joe is doubting the genius of Phil Neville there. How do you feel? Well, I'm confused because Joe called Singh a defender and I, I didn't see any of that in this game. Ouch. So I'm wondering where Joe came up with that idea. Not Ouch. great, huh? I mean, it wasn't it wasn't the best defensive display in terms of uh, defenders trying to defend and not doing it while having giant hair. It was very David Luiz esque in my mind, and I thought it was it was better from Inter Miami. Certainly, I I can't claim to have the familiarity that Joe certainly does with them, but I mean, to see them trying was nice. But I think we also still saw moments of kind of like snatching at efforts or still not playing as a cohesive unit. And from my understanding, Joe, that seems to be the knock against the team, that they don't really play as a team, as a unit. They play as a bunch of kind of expensive individuals who were brought in to be good, I guess, is kind of the idea there. But when they combine, they look very good. When they don't, they look okay individually. It's it's. It's hard because I almost think it's more on Phil Neville than anything else. Like, it's on the mm-hmm. coaching staff to give this team some sort of identity, right? It's 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 a bunch of talented individual players, but to an extent, that's every team. And every coach is faced with the job of—it's harder in Miami, but every coach is faced with the job of making them work together. And I have seen very little from Phil Neville this season that makes me think that he's able to do that in, in Major League Soccer, really. Miami switched over the last few games to more of a three-at-the-back shape that sometimes rotates over into a four-at-the-back shape. LGP was kind of the flex player on the right side. He was the right center back in moments, and he was the right back in other moments. And uh, Graham's Lewis Morgan was the right winger, and sometimes he was the right wing back. But, like, there are, I mean, you can talk about their quote-unquote tactics, but tactics are only useful when they're working towards a goal, when they're working towards some sort of overarching idea of how you want the game to be played. And I'm sure Phil Neville has those things. He's talked about those things publicly before. But the missing piece for Miami really isn't necessarily any one particular player that would solve their their issues or any one spot that they really need to address. It's that they don't have the ability to translate Phil Neville's ideas into actionable things on the field. And that's killed them all year long. And I don't think, even if they do sneak into the playoffs, they're not a threat this season. And they have some real issues to work through. As- is, is the key to their, their upturn in recent form, is it, is it not just that they're getting more out of the kind of the star individual players that they've got? So, you know, Pizarro and in, in this game, I'm starting to see what some, what some of the fuss was about. Um, I think he's got, <laughs> what, three goals in his last two games. Higain, you know, I know he's been brought in as a goal scorer, but they're getting slightly more out of him as a, as a facilitator. A lot of, particularly in the first half, a lot of the, 
of Inter Miami's play seem to be, you know, flowing through him. And then Perez, obviously, at, at the back with the two assists, is, is it not just that they're, they're kind of getting more out of the individuals? Yeah, I mean, that's a big part of it, right? When your star players or the players you brought in to be stars are playing like that and, and having the ball find the back of the net, that makes a big difference, right? But I I just still have a hard time believing it's sustainable. You get a boost from Pizarro when he's back in the lineup because he wasn't in the lineup for a lot of the season. And there was talks about Miami trying to offload him and then a whole bunch of stuff went down that Paul and Sam have talked about at length on allocation disorder. And it's just, it's one thing after another for this Miami team the, the one, I guess, thing I have in response to that, Graham, other than, yeah, you're right, is the, the last four wins that Miami have. So they've got four wins in their last six games. Three of those wins have come against Montreal, who's struggling a little bit right now. They've had a, a really nice season for them overall. But Montreal's been one win. Chicago, not a good team. Toronto, not a good team. So I mean, it's production, but it's production against teams that just aren't aren't a whole lot better than they are. And I think if you're Miami, you need to beat teams above you, like like really above you in the table. And they're they're still not doing that stuff. So what you're so what you're saying is that Ryan shouldn't add Inter Miami to his list of wagers for Inter Miami to Correct. win MLS Cup. <laughs> alongside Manchester United to win the title and Vieira to get sacked first. <laughs> he sh- he shouldn't add them to that list. No, I would not, Ryan. I would not. All right, Joe if you had if you had uh if Miami had come to you and asked you for your consulting services when they had their five dps but let's go with the four main dps which <laughs> would you have told them to get rid of cuz i don't know if they got rid of the right one uh so so pellegrini's <laughs> gone right and another one was andres reyes who is also gone those are those are two of the kind of lower end dps and then it's matuidi pizarro and iguain uh, all, all of them, really. I mean, <laughs> it's it's hard because Pizarro uh, is the guy. Who, just, right? Joe said it seriously. <laughs> I, I did genuinely because Pizarro is such a, a sort of fluid player. He really needs a, mm-hmm. a system around him to give him that platform to succeed. Miami doesn't have that. He'll still score goals. He scored two in this game, obviously, but he's not really a star number ten in a traditional sense. Iguain is old and doesn't move like I think a lot of folks hoped he would. And Matuidi, the same things I just said about Iguain apply. So, uh, yeah, I have questions about Miami, Taylor. Joe, another... <laughs> I do too. And... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Brian. I was just going to say another hypothetical for you. Let's say we start uh, Lowry Chester Rovers. You've got your own team. Uh, <laughs> and you have to pick a manager. And the, the two available are Phil Neville and Mikel Arteta. Who do you pick? Arteta. Uh, well, mm, yeah, Arteta. <laughs> that is... First of all, I'm going to change the name. I don't know what it's going to be, but Poison it's probably Chalice not going to be is what that's called. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's going to be Poison Chalice FC, and I'm just going to sell. I'm selling. I'm selling. I don't want to make that decision. <laughs> Fair enough, Taylor. Did I interrupt you there, sir? I'm just thinking of more Scylla and Charybdis FC. Uh, that's a that's a Greek myth one for you all. If you want that one, um, so high. Paul, Paul's piece for the Athletic about. Inter Miami, how they built, what they did, why they did what they did. Uh, we launched a brand, not a team, is the title. Uh, if you have an athletic subscription, you should absolutely read, read that. Yeah. And I will admit, reading that before watching this game probably biased me pretty considerably. But the way it seems like there's no clear decision maker anywhere with the organization, I think you see that on the field. It bleeds down. And so, Joe, to your point, like, yeah. Like it's a shame that Phil Neville can't kind of get his ideas across or people aren't buying into it. But it also seems to be the case that it goes above him to like David Beckham saying, hey, that guy's my buddy. Can we sign him? And then they did. And he was a DP. Like it's it's a strange series of decisions behind this club. Yeah, it shouldn't it shouldn't be any surprise that they have the systemic problems that that Joe is talking about, given as as you referenced their Paul's piece in the Athletic Taylor 
where they seem to be initially focusing on, you know, the Atlanta United route of focusing on yeah, um, yeah. South South American young talents with with sell on value, and then all of a sudden immediately pivoted towards signing Higayin and uh, and Blaise Matuidi. Hey, but <laughs> you know, Ryan Shawcross and Kieran Gibbs—they changed it up this year, man. Oh yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that really changed things. Kieran Gibbs scored a great poacher's goal, to be fair, just in a in the wrong net in this uh, game. Is all. There we go. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, one, one final note oh, on this game uh, for for our Canuck friends, Toronto, who are winless in their last six outings. Uh, Graham, I'll ask you this: What is worse, uh, Singh's defending in this game? He got um, on who scored.com, He got a four point nine. I don't remember ever seeing a score that low for a professional player. Oh, wow. Um, which is yikes. Or uh, Achara up top wearing number 99. What's worse? <laughs> um, I'm going to say, I'm still going to say the defending. At least 99 is, you know, two nines. It's a bit, it's it a is. bit kind of, uh, it's a bit contrived, but the defending was so bad in this game. Although Achara, I thought he was, uh, he was just left on his own for much. Anytime a ball was played in, there seemed to be five Inter Miami players around him, and even the goal they score comes from from a situation like that. So, his if, if we're factoring his play in as well, and I don't know how much was his fault, but uh, we'll go we'll see Achara. All right. Well, there's certainly work to do in Toronto, maybe some in Miami as well, but no more work left to do for us, gents, in this podcast because we have just about reviewed that old weekend. Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much for stopping by. Listeners, thank you all very much for stopping by as well. And apologies if you've heard the baby crying in the background for the last 20 minutes, because that's been an ever-present fixture. That's a rude way to talk about Joe Lowry, but thank you very much, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Ryan, you're so welcome. That was great. And Graham Ruthven, please don't watch as many games next weekend. We want you to be around longer. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've got to head off now to watch some more. I bet you. I just do, picture so. you with the like clockwork orange, like your eyes are taped open, you're dropping and drops <laughs> occasionally just to make sure you're you're catching everything all the time. Yeah, that that is pretty much spot on, except it's uh, just cans and cans of Red Bull. <laughs> And I am Brew, of course, Graham. And I am Brew, of course. Of course. All right. Thank you very much, listener. We'll be back soon. Bye. Bye.